0: Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today for a very special episode of Banter is Paul Ryan, who is the Speaker of the House of Representatives from 2015 to 2019 and is a Distinguished Visiting Fellow with us at AEI. Um, as many of our listeners know, during his tenure as Speaker, he. Speaks spearheaded efforts to reform the nation's tax code, rebuild America's national defense, expand domestic energy production, combat the opioid epidemic, reform criminal justice, and promote economic opportunity. He's also served as the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and chairman of the House Budget Committee. For two decades, he represented Wisconsin's first congressional district, and in 2019, he was selected to serve as Governor Mitt Romney's vice presidential running mate. And we're here mostly to talk about the new volume that's out today, where he is a co-editor, um, American Renewal, a Conservative Plan to Strengthen the Social Contract and Save the Country's Finances. Thanks for joining us on Banter.
1: Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's a very special thing to have the former Speaker of the House yeah. of Representatives with us and is also an AI scholar, and we greatly appreciate his time with us since he's left the House of Representatives. Um, but I learned something last night at our annual dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to sit next to the Speaker's wife, Jana, and I've been wondering for a lot of time, what is the secret to Paul Ryan's success?
2: Yeah, now you know. And now
1: I know. <laughs> She's wonderful. You've got a great wife. She
2: is. Very I I'll kicks my coverage. We like to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Pretty quick, football analogy. Pretty quickly. Okay. All right. So you've got this heavy book. I. It's. I mean, I want you listeners to listen to it. it it's a big, serious, heavy book full yeah. of facts and go. figures and positions. And I I'm sort of. I, one thing I wanted to say is, is: Does a politician write a book like this?
2: Uh, not many. Yeah, that's true. Right. But I'm, I'm a recovering politician now, Robert. I'm, I'm actually a think tank guy now. Yeah. So.
1: so, but I mean, because now some, you know, some opposition research guy could yeah, pour Yeah, I don't care this. about that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I mean, I, the opposition research guys were going after me when I was chairman of the budget committee, authoring you know, roadmap budgets back in the day. So I stopped worrying about that stuff long ago in my political career.
1: So speaking of things that you have to worry about in a political career... One of the sentences that's very prominent in, in the book and in the section that you write is the federal government, this is a, a, a common line, but it's you say it very directly, is making promises to its citizens that it cannot keep. And you emphasize the debt and the deficit and the burden of of all this spending and lack of revenue to, to pay for it. And so the question I have for you is in all of the, the chapters, and again, it's a collection of essays that you've edited, assembled, persuaded scholars to write. That's right. Um where, where are the cuts or new revenue, uh, that, that, or what are your favorite cuts or new revenue that you think would help us with this big problem?
2: I I don't think the word cut is the right word to use because the cut means that we need to go into an austerity mode right now and start taking things away from people and making government, you know, worse than what people think it is today. Um, the point I we make in this book is that we are headed for a debt crisis in this country. There's no mistaking that. We just don't know exactly when that's going to occur. And it is because our debt is on an unsustainable path. And we know when you have an unsustainable debt that that ends very badly for countries like like ours. And it could cost us our reserve currency status. It could cost us the ability to finance our social contract, our social safety net. And so we, we propose very smart reforms of these programs. And those reforms bring our spending to be in line with more sustainable levels so that our debt is stabilized so that we do not have a debt crisis, so that we do not have to do radical, ugly, real-time budget surgery on our social programs under which, over which people have organized their lives around. These are the promises government's making to people. It, it now does not have a means of, of keeping. So what we're proposing collectively in this book is how do you strategically reform all of these programs using, using, the, the the policy and the technology and the principles that we have here at AEI and, and what we know now in the 21st century, how do we overhaul these 20th century promises and programs to work in the 21st century, to work better, to better fulfill these missions, I would argue, and avoid a debt crisis so that we can get out of the malaise we are in, get out of the malaise, economic malaise we're, we're supposedly consigned to in this century and get us back to a path of real growth and prosperity and upward mobility in America.
1: So, okay, we'll call them reforms, and that's good. And they're long-term, and they change the incentives. But 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 looking at them, which do you think are going to pay the biggest dividends in either reductions in long-term spending yeah. or in increases in revenue uh, that, that you really like? The ones that are like your personal favorites.
2: The, the, the ones that are my personal favorites are the ones that move the needle the most, which are the entitlement reforms, namely the health care entitlement reforms, social security entitlement reforms, that grow those programs more sustainably – in a defined, at a defined rate, so that, I hate to get wonky, on an accrual basis, you can wipe out trillions of dollars of unfunded liabilities. You can not only guarantee the current benefits for current retirees and people about to retire, but for those of us in the X generation on down, you can actually have a system that will be viable and solvent for us when we retire, so that you take a look at what Jim Caprata is doing on Medicare. You take a look at what Tom Miller is proposing on Medicaid. You take a look at what Andy Biggs is proposing on Social Security, Burkeheiser on, on disability, on and on. Those reforms change the the, the the growth of these programs to be more sustainable, but I would strongly argue they make these programs work better. They reflect the 21st century. They inject more choice and competition in private sector selector, selector solutions that make these programs work better, but grow them more sustainably so we avoid a debt crisis. I'm On the glad- revenue side, I think the way we we propose tax reform, um, which is really going to put America in a very better competitive position with the rest of the world and help um, increase productivity and entrepreneurship and therefore faster economic growth. That we So we're not proposing a massive increase in revenues. We're proposing to keep the kind of revenue projections we have and bring our spending closer in line with those revenue projections, but to do it in a way that we think can maximize economic growth and therefore wage gains and upward mobility.
1: So I'm going to come back to taxes in a minute, but let's stick with, I'm so glad you mentioned Andy Biggs, Andrew Biggs. He's one of the, he is the foremost expert on social security. 100%.
2: And
1: one of the things he's told us in the past, and and I want to be clear for our listeners, and, and, and maybe I have it wrong, so you can correct me, but is that, what he's talking about is is tweaks to the way in which you calculate benefits for people who are a while away yeah. off from re- retiring yeah. that that just make them a little less generous in the average. for higher
2: income people. For higher income. Yeah, people. so the way he 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 propose, he looks at different systems around the world like the Australian system, the British system and he sees where what are some good ideas we can replicate. For instance, there is no minimum benefit today in social security to prevent people from slipping below the poverty line when they retire. He proposes a minimum benefit so that no one actually is under the poverty line in old age. But he also proposes to um, have the benefit increases taper for higher income people to protect people from price inflation for higher income people and maintain wage inflation protection for lower income people. That means testing of the benefit increase does save a lot of money. I'm um, adjusting the retirement age to reflect longevity clearly saves money over the long run and he proposes what i call add-on accounts meaning giving people especially younger people the ability to have additional savings going to private sector investments like index funds that can get them a better rate of return on their on their earnings over their working years so they have a better retirement when they retire my kids today if social security could pay them what it's promising them which it cannot are scheduled to get a negative one percent rate of return on their FICA taxes. It's ridiculous. It's uns- mm-hmm. It's it's, it's it, it doesn't have to be that way. What what Biggs is proposing is a good safety net that works to keep people out of poverty, to keep people ger- with guaranteed benefits, but also better rates of return, for, for so that they actually have a better retirement when they when they actually retire versus what they're scheduled to have today.
1: So let's now talk about revenues. And, you know, I didn't, I haven't really studied carefully Kyle uh, Pomerlew's chapter or Alex Brill's or who writes about revenues. Yeah. But can you just give our right. listeners a sense? Is it, is it, A higher income tax? Is it a a bigger? What what tax are you changing? They
2: propose keeping the same revenue baseline we have today based on um, my seminal achievement in Congress, the Tax (laughs) Cut and Jobs Act, which is that revenue baseline. That's right. Which basically is giving us historic revenues, by the way. But they propose to change the tax system in a way that we always, people like me, have always wanted to get to. The Tax Cut and Jobs Act was a fantastic down payment on tax reform. It has proven to be very internationally competitive. It, it was a really good down payment on tax reform, but ultimately for the 21st century, they're proposing um, a, a comprehensive tax reform, which is what we call a, a destination-based cash flow tax. Okay, that was oh, a real oh mouthful boy, right oh there. <laughs> so, oh getting boy. too wonky here. Are we here. bringing
1: up what was that thing that you proposed at one point that it didn't work? Border out? adjustment tax. <laughs>
2: yeah, 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 yeah. I thought, oh my so, God, it's the it, new border no, adjustment no. tax. No, no. Well, it's, it's 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 a consumption-based type of tax. Okay but it, it, it does it in such a way that it, it proposes a single entity tax. We don't have all these different kinds of incorporations and that businesses are taxed at 15% on their actual consumed income and that they can write off all their expenses in plant and equipment. That is an extremely globally competitive tax. In order to pay for converting to a system like this, that puts us in a very good comp- competitive stance mm-hmm. worldwide, gives us high productivity and better wage gains they propose a a carbon tax a border adjustable carbon tax on top of that we believe that that is a smarter way to go after decarbonizing than the the, the pork barrel green pork spending that you just saw with the inflation I've reduction i've heard Act. that
1: there's been some talk in congress about a border adjustment carbon tax that's what this this is this and, what this and proposal this is and so, is. I, so I, I love the fact that this, this is, all a, this, coming is together.
2: Destination, this is a this is a a good tried and true conservative business um, tax reform with a border adjusted carbon tax on top. So so it gets a couple things. Number one, it taxes the carbon that's dirty from China and India so that they are, are playing in this game. Number two, it sends price signals on carbon through the marketplace yeah. so that you're incentivizing innovation and entrepreneurs to figure out how to best decarbon versus sitting in Washington Picking winners and losers, and subsidizing yesterday's technology with tax credits and spending and subsidies, like the Democrats have been doing.
1: Yeah, but the way it works is in, is that the, the 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 exporters from other countries, that Americans are importing those mm. products, the countries have to certify their carbon content, their, That's their right. carbon content, so or their their green, you know, their climate compliance, That's whatever right. you want to call it. If they do that. And the tariff, I call it a tariff. You guys call it a tax. The tariff is lower. The border adjustment tax makes me laugh because I people want to know it's a tariff, isn't it, Paul?
2: It really isn't. It it's actually doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't really But doesn't if you work.
1: don't get certified, if you don't have the clean deal and you're dirty and you try to send something to us, we put a little tax on
2: it. That's right. So we take the tax off our exports and we put a tax on our imports based on carbon intensity. And so what that does is it makes sure that we in America don't shoulder all of the burden of this, number one. Number two, it makes sure that we send price signals throughout the global economy about price, um, about pricing carbon. The, the point I make in this is, and that Kyle and Alex are talking about, is we're America. America typically sets the trend for these things. And America should set the trend for the smartest free market way to decarbonize the economy – so that you're not trading economic growth for decarbonizing. Absolutely. You're having economic growth, upward mobility, entrepreneurship, risk-taking, innovation, 100%, 100%. and decarbonizing 100%, Paul. versus but, but what the Democrats thing. are trying to but, do, which is basically to, to subsidize yes, and yes, pick winners yes, and losers yes, in yes, the marketplace. Yes,
1: I got it all. But just one thing to be clear about, you are – and and I'm not, I'm not critical of this no. by any means, but I think you are a leader in this. You are acknowledging that there is a climate change problem.
2: Yes, and that we should move our economies to decarbonizing. Okay. We should because do that because
1: there is a problem. It, that's right. What,
2: what I tell my conservative friends, if you're not sure about this this science, then let's err on the side okay. of getting it right. Okay. Let's okay. err on the side of being clean, and more importantly, just from a practical standpoint, I do believe we should decarbon. So yeah. to answer your question, but from a practical standpoint, the world is doing this. All the various different economies are are putting in place decarbonizing policies. But the decarbonizing policies they're putting in place are not good policies. Okay. It's, it's, it's cronyism. It's subsidization. It's old technologies. Why don't we lead and show let's send price signals through the marketplace on carbon so that you can really fuel innovation and have the private sector help us through this. And we're demonstrating you can have fast economic growth. So here's the conservative bargain here. We want supply-side pro-growth tax reform. That is good for higher economic growth and mobility in exchange for participating on smarter decarbonizing policy.
1: Okay, so I got it that you're gonna you're gonna reduce the tax burden on American businesses that are doing the right thing and let them be free and do as much as they can. And I'm all for that. And I, I think a lot of people are. And but you need to raise the revenue that you That's lose. Right. And the way you're gonna do it is you're gonna make. Uh, Dirty, uh, uh, dirty, right. dirty, dirty, uh, dirty, dirty climate polluters. Which sounds all and, great to and, me. No change to the tax rates for middle class Americans. Yeah, so, so there, Americans. Is, there
2: are some proposals here that, that uh, Alex and Kyle have for middle income, um, and that is to, to, to compress the tax rates and make them less. Uh, they're still graduated. They're still uh, progressive, but to, to lower that top tax rate. And um, we have other proposals about combining the child tax credit and the earned income tax cuts that are pro family and pro work. We have a the line deduction for charitable de- donations because we want to, we want to breathe life into civil society. Mm-hmm. So there are other good, reforms good, here great. on the individual so side good, of the tax. Great code.
1: group. They're great scholars. They do great work and you getting them together and pulling this all together in one place is just a great service. Um, one last thing on mm-hmm. revenue and, and, um, and um, spending uh, you you know these charts that we all put up on percent of GDP spending or or revenue. That's right. W- what's the numbers you like? Twenty percent, nineteen percent, twenty two percent. Well, 22%? there's no there's no.
2: I, I would just go at our historic average. So our hist. I would here's the question: Do we want to? Because right now the federal government is is slated to double in size of relative to GDP. We're supposed to go to from twenty percent of GDP to forty percent of GDP uh, in our lifetimes. Um, that would make our economy slow and less free and, oh, by the way, bankrupt us right. because there's no way we're going to bring revenue from 18 percent of GDP up to 40 percent of GDP. So I think the the question is, can we pay for the borrowing to get through the baby boomer bulge, meaning guaranteeing these benefits for people in and near retirement and reform these programs prospectively so that we can get that spending line back closer to 20 percent of GDP and revenues there over the long haul. Okay. The markets, I would argue, will allow us to do that if we put these reforms in place soon and show that over the long haul, we've got our act together. We're getting our debt under control. We have put reforms that when they take place in the future will prevent us from having a debt crisis, but we will, at the end of the day, have a federal government that is around 20% of GDP.
1: And that does distinguish us from European countries. In 100%. I mean, that that's what it makes, makes America more free. more free. I mean, and if you can, we can... Do that, then that's it's a funny thing that that's a way of measuring our freedom. That's right. And um, okay, now I want to ask you a specific question because I know you've been working on this topic, and I think I think there's a chapter in here that endorses it, and I want you to tell us what it is: central bank digital yeah. currency. Yeah,
2: yeah. So. So we had to go, we went outside of AEI. Uh, Oh, my God. You let me do this. Uh, I I went with with my good friend, Kevin Warsh, at the Hoover Institute. Yes,
1: I know, even worse.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Look, this is all one big conservative family here. That's right. We're all happy and together here. And
1: Kevin's a great guy.
2: He's a great guy. He's he's a longtime friend of mine, and he uh, was a Federal Reserve governor. So we, uh, through the Warsh, Kevin and I have talked about this um, for a long time. He is proposing a two-tier central bank. Uh, digital currency system. Now, here's the key thing for conservatives. It is absolutely essential that we have a two-tier system. What do I mean by that? You do not want to have the China-type system. China is in the midst of digitizing their RMB, their currency. China's central bank, the the, the PCOB, they will control money for consumers, for their people, and they're going to try and export this to the Belt Road countries and hook everybody up to their payment rails, where China can surveil and control the conditionality and the surveillance of people's money. That is what, that is big brother cubed. Mm -hmm. So what we're proposing here, what Kevin's proposing is knowing that we should digitize our currencies, because right now there's a lot of friction that is paid. Uh, Meaning when you send money overseas or around the, the, the economy, you know, you lose some of that value and it goes to intermediaries with with blockchain technology, with digitization, you can get rid of that friction. So think of the efficiencies that are gained by having digital payment rails and digital currencies. So the I key, just to stop though, you there, just because this yeah. is
1: one that comes up a lot in this, uh, and I don't want to use a, uh, you know, I don't want to call say crypto, but let's just say this this new kind of currency or this new kind of digital. yeah, crypto
2: is not a sovereign currency. That's yeah, that's a little a, different. This is this is a central. Yeah, this bank. is sovereign money. Because yeah.
1: when people say that that friction takes a lot of money out, it does. I'm thinking. Regulators, bank uh, fees, bank fees, four to six percent uh, taxes. No, this is this is pre Not it's a way to avoid. avoid
2: taxes. It's a way to avoid all the fees that get take, tacked onto your money when you're sending it around the world okay. or around your economy. So it
1: forces the banking industry, really, it does, is, to, to 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 be cheaper to the consumer. That's right. To so the
2: user, it, it takes away all that friction. So, but but a two-tier system is is what we have today. The central bank gives its dollars to bank bank clearing houses. You know governed, regulated banks, they are the ones that integrate with the economy. They are the ones that interact with consumers. So there is a line of separation between the state, the government, and the consumer, which are the, the banks. Okay. We propose to maintain that two-tier system So that there never is a direct line from the Federal Reserve to the consumer because, God forbid, Elizabeth Warren becomes Treasury Secretary and decides to, you know, put people's, you know, ESG scores on their money and tries to intimidate people. So what we want to do is get ahead of this issue, keep big brother out of our money and make sure that we have money that honors our privacy and our liberties, but harnesses the technology that comes with digitization because we know this is coming. It's going to move around the world. Other central banks are doing this. So the question is, does America lead or follow or get in this and, de- and determine the, the terms of this? Does America lead with the terms to make sure that money is free, private, and, 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 and our liberties are protected, but that we get the benefit of digital currencies and a digital sovereign? This in my mind is how combined with these fiscal reforms, you maintain the dollar as the world's reserve currency. If the dollar ultimately doesn't digitize, this is my opinion, and it's, it's definitely a debated point. If the dollar doesn't ultimately digitize, that will hasten the day when we no longer are seen as the reserve currency. And if we lose our reserve currency status, we will lose this exorbitant privilege that gives America enormous power, hard and soft power around the world and economic benefits for us, for us here at home
1: now just on this last thing and then phoebe you got to get in here but i've got one big topic we still haven't covered so just be aware that i'm i've got something else on my mind but we'll get there in a minute but um kevin did a good job on this this is a complicated issue a lot of americans don't understand it you're it pleased with how it i am prepared. and he
2: spelled it out so it gets kind of complicated i mean for those of us who spent two decades working on these issues it's but where it's a is thing. it in congress
1: i mean uh, is that something that's alive now oh yeah it's, that, a, it's a it's live conversation alive now, i'm excited
2: about that that you know we narrowly got the majority but as Kevin uh, McCarthy said the other day, our gavels don't come in small, medium, and yeah. large. We have gavels. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. and the smartest guy on this issue is about to get the gavel in charge of this, which is Patrick McHenry. He's going to be the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. Thank God we're coming to the age of, of dollar digitization, of, of of digital currencies, when Patrick McHenry is, is in charge of this jurisdiction. Um, so there are, there's going to have to be Web 3 laws in 2023, if only because of the FTX fiasco, you know, which is sort of an Enron well, for crypto. But this is something
1: that the, the parties could come together. On I do. With I Patrick's think. So. I, I think that's exactly but, right. So who is the Who is the Senate equivalent?
2: Well, right now that Banking Committee, which we lost the majority or didn't get the majority there, is Sherrod Brown. Um, I, I think he's probably not the right guy in this particular issue. There are plenty of plenty of Democrats. Uh, Kristen okay. Cinema is a big Democrat on this. Um, Kristen Gillibrand's a Democrat that's really into this. Cory Booker. So there are Democrats in the Senate who are into this issue, know the issue, and I do believe. We have no choice but to have bipartisan solution on this. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to ask more broadly just about the political feasibility of the the book and the set of proposals that you have. Um, I mean, in some ways, it was a disappointing midterm for Republicans. But on the other hand, you did see voters reject a lot of kind of populist policies. And it seems like there could be an opening for more substantive policy leaders. How do you kind of make the case of the urgency of these proposals, especially to Republicans, where a lot of these ideas have kind of fallen out of vogue or aren't forefront for Republican politicians right
2: yeah, now? Yeah, we spent the last year plus working on this book, you know, putting these these artic- these pieces together, um, negotiating with all the various scholars in, in in with an eye toward getting back to a substantive debate in this session of Congress, knowing and hoping that we would probably at least have divided government. You know, our, my thesis was... We'll get at least one of the majorities, the House, which we did. Mm-hmm. And I think the key is to raise our gaze to a more substantive policy debate so that we can get ahead of these really big pressing problems in America. Um, our politics have not been that serious lately. And so what this attempt, what this is attempts to do is, is bring us to more serious policy discussions so that we can have a, a robust debate about getting ahead of America's problems, offer a solution so that candidates can run on solutions and then have a mandate if they win that election to put these solutions in place. Now, what I just said sounds kind of partisan. It It, it is and it isn't. It's partisan in that I think the conservative movement needs to get back to fund foundational ideas and principles for offering the country real solutions to the problems that, are, that they're confronting. It's also important to note that America is facing some serious inflection points that we have to get ahead of. But the 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 bipartisan point i'm trying to make is i think this is just from my 25 years in in public life 20 in congress and five as a staffer before then that we've sort of come to a venn diagram of consensus on the social contract in america we 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 feverishly debated the great society and the new deal in the 20th century i think in the 21st century we all agree, I'm talking about between the 20-yard lines, center-right and center-left and everything in between agree, we want health and retirement security for people in old age, for people who are low-income. We want a vibrant social safety net to help people who cannot help themselves and to help people get back on their feet, who are down on their luck, to help, to help reinvigorate this idea of upper mobility so that the next generation is better off, that the condition of your birth doesn't determine the outcome of your life in this country. We have consensus on this, general consensus. And so if you take a look at all the ideas that are out there and all the private sector innovations that have occurred out there and what we've learned in the field of economics, I think there is a general consensus for how we can make these programs work better, Mm -hmm. make them solvent. And let's agree, we want to do this. We want health and retirement security. We want a social safety net. This is the social contract that the center right and the center left agrees on. Mm -hmm. We should debate how to do it, but we should not debate kicking the can down the road and watching it blow up in our faces in our debt crisis. So let's get on with, with debating about how yeah. to solve this problem so that we can actually solve it. And let's have some elections about that mm-hmm. so we can get ourselves a mandate and then go fix the problem before it's too late.
1: In the in the timing of it, I, I do compliment you, Paul, that it's perfectly timed. I mean, it's coming out now, just as the two houses are putting together their their conferences for the next session. You've got, you know, two years to work on it in this way, exactly. in the presidential election. It's comprehensive. There's a lot here. There's a lot for people to work on. It's definitely nonpartisan. This is not a partisan. That's right.
2: It's not in any way. It's written by conservatives uh, yeah, from from a. You I don't. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't
1: worry. I mean, <laughs> this is it's okay. You can be conservative and nonpartisan. And, that's right. I agree. And uh, you don't always have to be partisan. Uh, I'm uh, actually not always partisan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know you're not. I know you're not. I'm, uh, but so it's, I do. I I think that that what you described is sort of the timing of it, and it's. It, it reminds me of other periods where a lot of good ideas were developed and then proposed at the right time for them exactly. to actually be implemented over, over a couple-year period. Uh, but there is one dividing line on the social contract, in my opinion, that is not so easy to reconcile with work. Democrats, and that's work. Work. I knew you were saw uh, your So what card. is yeah. the role <laughs> of work requirements in whatever social contract it's is in this book?
2: absolutely essential. If you want to have upper mobility restored in America, if you want to get from the malaise that we are projected to have, the Congressional Budget Office is forecasting economic growth in America will be at trending at one point six percent. We used to be at three percent. Having our growth, I mean cutting our growth rate in half, is an enormous difference in prosperity and upper mobility. So, the thing you need to fix this problem is labor force participation people working the thing you need to make sure that we don't have a permanent underclass of people, you know, basically, you know, being dependent upon um, other other things like government for their success is work and upper mobility. So throughout the proposals here that reform our social safety net is, 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 is a constant tie to work, work requirements. And it's a simplification of the safety net. It's combining their earned income tax credit with the child tax credit with work requirements. It's it's overhauling K through 12 education and job training education and our social safety net system, all toward getting people who are able-bodied to work. So it does clearly come down on the side. And there's been a big debate about this, even in the conservative movement, right. this comes down on the side of being pro-family while also promoting work. So that is so inescapable. If you want to get us out of the malaise we're consigned to, and if you want to get people out of being stuck in their current station of life, and being forever dependent on, on government programs for the livelihood, to being independent, upper mobile, and 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 making the best living, the best version of their lives.
1: And so you know, we lived through the debate of the Biden uh, Build Back Better Act with its very generous child tax credit that went to all families, regardless of whether either of the parents worked at all, not even one hour. And I think there was a time during that debate, Paul, oh, when you, so were yeah, you were pretty discouraged. You were pretty discouraged. And, and it didn't happen. It, it got taken out. Because
2: of one person, Joe yeah, Manchin. Yes, I yeah. know.
1: But 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 this book endorses that philosophy. We can't be sending checks to non-workers uh, who make no effort to get into the workforce and are able-bodied. We just can't be doing
2: that. If you pay people not to work, they won't work. And if they don't work, then everybody suffers. Not only do they suffer and their lives uh, miss their potential. And their families. And their families miss their potential, but the entire economy suffers and that is why the congressional budget office among other reasons is saying if we have fewer workers in the workforce we won't grow nearly as fast and there'll be that fewer opportunities that slower wage gains less productivity so getting more people in the workforce is is essential to to our shared prosperity and inclusive growth
1: so um you you've um it's great book Great document, something we been working on, and our scholars are, are proud of, and you're and we're yeah. proud that it's produced. Yeah, my
2: goal here is that you've got 18 people here who would be perfect, you know, testimony on Capitol Hill. Yeah,
1: that's right. If they're
2: building, yeah. if they're building reforms, and if they're right. look in divided government, we're not going to get you know everything right. Right. But it's a time to go back to the basics, go back to the drawing board, and start curating and building policies that are right for the 21st century to get our country, you know, out of the malaise that we're consigned to, to avoid a debt crisis, to prevent the austerity that would befall us if we don't do anything. And there are there's a great list of scholars here who are ready and willing and able to go to Capitol Hill and help connect with policymakers to curate and build these ideas.
1: Okay, so, but you've also made some news in the weeks leading up to the release of this book uh, by making some comments about the presidential campaign in 2024. And um, you were pretty strong. I, I mean, I don't have the quote in front of me, but you, you basically said, the. The country needs to move in a new direction, for new leadership, for a new time, turn the page, uh, let's not go back to the former president. That's right. Um, uh, uh, how are you feeling about that now?
2: I, I don't think he's going to get the nomination at the end of the day. I really don't. Uh, and the reason I say that is because we're going to want to win, and we really know we don't win with him. Look, if the evidence is so painfully obvious now. We lost our House majority in 2018. We lost the presidency and the Senate in 2020. And again, right now in 2022, we just got a rude awakening. You know, we lost the Senate, frankly, because of Trump, because of the Trump-backed primary. He got people through the primaries who couldn't win the general election in the Senate. And therefore, we did not get the Senate majority as a consequence. And it's really clear evidence that we have a smaller House majority because of his people not being able to win the general elections in the House as well. So that's four election cycles, four, four instances here you know, where we lost the House, the Senate, the presidency, and the Senate, again, and barely, we're going to have a small majority in the House. And and I think the major contributing factor is because of Trump. I think it's really obvious the swing voter in America is a suburban voter. They don't like Trump. They won't vote for Trump. But just take a look at, like, the DeSantis polls versus yeah. Trump. Mm-hmm. That swing suburban voter likes Republicans. They like conservative policies. So I'm grateful— Frankly, I, I was not a never-Trumper uh, because I governed with Donald General Trump, and I'm grateful for those policy achievements we had. Including the tax? Great policy achievements. Deregulation, tax reform, criminal justice reform, great judges, awesome achievements. I don't wish the man ill will. I hope he and his family have happy, healthy lives, private lives in the future. But it is it is really clear if we keep going forward with him, we're going to keep getting the same result, which is we're going to lose elections we can't afford to lose elections. There's a country that needs saving. The left, people don't like what the left are offering. They don't like the inflation and the big spending and the the nanny state government that comes with this. So it is a time for new leaders. It is a time where we have a stable of next-generation conservative leaders that are more than capable of leading this country and more, by the way, more than capable of winning an election, which Donald Trump, I don't think, can. That's why I feel the way I feel.
1: So, uh, turning to the more positive, we had... Four potential chairmen, look like they're going to be chairman in the AI building yesterday. Mrs. McMorris-Rogers, who were the... uh, Who else? I wasn't here. We had Crenshaw. Yep. He was great. Are you pleased with the members your former yeah. colleagues who are getting these chairmanship appointments. I, I am. Like I am.
2: That. They're going to finish. I think they do chairmanships the week after Thanksgiving. So there's a couple of that races. I won't get into who gets Ways what. And means. Yeah. I won't get, <laughs> yeah. Ways on. and Means is my sweetheart. I love that committee. Yeah. But uh, Kathy's is clearly going to be the, the commerce committee chair. She's a great leader. She's going to be a really good uh, person for us in that space. Patrick McHenry is going to be financial services, but there are, there's a competitive race for budget chair, a competitive race for Ways and Means chair, um, old these ladies. these, old, these yeah. my old stomping grounds. My yeah. all of the, her friends of mine. Yeah. I used to run the steering committee, which mm-hmm. which will make this choice. Point is, we're going to be in good hands. We've got good policy leaders stepping into the breach, who are going to be um, working on these issues, conducting the oversight. Frankly, you need to conduct, but also teasing out ideas by taking our long timeless held conservative principles, applying them to the problems of the day, offering the country solutions. This book is is an attempt to help start that process so that we can go to the American people, all together collectively have conservatives, um, center right and offer solutions. And that if we win that election, then we will have earned ourselves a mandate to in 2025, solve these problems, get this country on the right track. That to me is a very exciting proposition.
1: So you are associated, affiliated with AI as a Scholar Fellow, and I just, last question, and I'm not looking for an advertisement, so just tell it to us straight, but how do you, to explain to our listeners yeah. how you fit that responsibility, which you have, uh, into your into the way in which you see yourself and, and see your, your career. Yeah,
2: I decided to go back to sort of private and public vocational life, um, not elected politics. Um, I teach economics at Notre Dame. I have a charitable foundation that focuses on poverty economics, center-right poverty economics, um, that, that is really exciting work, and then here at AEI uh eight, where we work at curating good ideas to solve the country's problems and my own hope having you know been 20 years in congress in my early days in congress there wasn't a week where people like me were not over at a think tank working on ideas or they were in my office helping with with ideas there's been a breakdown in that and the conservative movement on capitol hill um you've had a lot of sort of i would say you know performance art and entertainment politics lacking some substance and so what i hope is we can reconnect conservative policy thinkers with conservative lawmakers to start getting past the performance art and and you know the 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 entertainment politics and get back to real substance and real solutions that that actually speak to where people are and and solve the problems that we have today and so i enjoy this this sort of private life you know vocational life where i work on these ideas because I was was grateful for the career I had. I loved public life. I loved campaigning. But right now, I just like working on ideas. I like the policy side of it. That's kind of my natural love. It's where I came from. It's where I am now. That
1: connection between people with ideas and research and and analysis and people in in positions of power is what we do at AI, and you are helping us greatly to do that well. So thank thank you very much. Phoebe, Mm -hmm. anything more?
0: Yeah, no, I'm good.
1: Thanks, everybody. See you next time.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.